Welcome to another exciting episode of In-Depth with Dion. I'm here with an amazing guest, national broadcast reporter Rashida Kaba with Local News Live. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dion. I'm super excited. Thanks for asking me to do this. I am so grateful to have you on. I want to talk. I want to get right into it. But first, I want to give the uh, audiences listening and watching an understanding of your background. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into journalism and what led you to D.C.? Yeah, it's super funny because you and I actually went to college together at the University of Oklahoma. And so um, it's interesting to see kind of what you and I are both doing, kind of, you know, still following our dreams, still have that hunger that we had. I remember being group partners with you in one of, one of our classes and us just kind of grinding it out. And that's mm -hmm. how, um, you know, we both got our start is at OU at Gaylord College of Journalism and um, both worked behind the scenes and in front of the camera at OU Nightly, which was our student newscast. And that was on Monday through Friday. And that's really when I got bit by the news bug. I remember <laughs> I was a camera operator um, starting off on the um, on the team. And just I remember operating the camera to the best of my ability and being like, I want to be on the other side of that camera next semester. Because <laughs> I remember we had tryouts. So it's so funny because I'm like, I used to take OU Nightly so seriously, which is such a great program. But it's just interesting to see that I still have that same hunger um, that I had whenever I was in college. Um, I got my first job out of college um, that next December after graduating in May, um, and I started in January at um, NTV News in Grand Island, Nebraska. I was a bureau multimedia journalist, which mm. meant that I wrote, shot, and edited all of my own stuff in the middle of nowhere. Um, in some cases, it was a little bit nerve-wracking, especially being um, a person of color, being in small-town Nebraska. Um, you know, doing door knocks on people's doors and being like, hey, do you want to talk about this? Um, it, it's, it's, it was uh, difficult. It was definitely a, a growing time for me. And, you know, it's your mm -hmm. first time away from home. You have your first apartment by yourself. Um, and there's a lot of pressure in the industry. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, whenever I go back and I talk to students about is that I like to be transparent about that pressure, that pressure that comes with being a journalist and that you have to be right. You unfortunately, a lot of times your looks are picked apart, um, what you wear, how you present yourself, how you speak. And, you know, a, a lot of people understand that in those smaller markets that you're just starting off and some people give you that grace. Um, but it's really important to make sure that you find um, an environment, a newsroom that fosters your type of learning. Um, and for me, being in a bureau, that was really difficult for me because I was by myself most of the time. Mm -hmm. So where a lot of people would get that firsthand experience with other coworkers to learn from, I had a coworker that left when I came in. And so I'd have to really hone in on what he was saying while he was there because I might have that question later on. Um, and I always hated the technical aspect of journalism and having to be a multimedia journalist, you, you got to know the technical stuff, the camera, the the audio. I can't tell you how many times I came back and there was no audio. I did a whole interview and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> what happened to my audio? Right. Um, but I stayed there about a year and three months. And I, I in that time frame, I knew to myself that I could do I told myself I could do more. And it always been my dream to be a news anchor. Um, and for people who don't understand the difference, the reporters and multimedia journalists, they're out in the field, they're out in the community and being connected to the community is one of the great parts that I love about reporting. Um, however, a lot of times you're by yourself 
or the pressure of the clock is on um, and you have to have your stuff ready because at the end of the day, if your live hit is at five o'clock, regardless of what you have, five o'clock, you got to go on. And I've had times where my video wasn't working and they're like, all right, three, two, one, you're on. Well, you're just going to have to explain the whole interview since it's not there. (laughs) So um, definitely had some trials and tribulations, um, but Idaho was my opportunity to hone in on my on-camera skills, to be in an environment that was actually a newsroom environment since I had been in a bureau. Um, And I was given a, or I earned a a Monday through Friday news anchor position, which, you know, I think the industry has changed a lot since then. It's a little bit, um, it's not as difficult, I'd say, to get your first anchoring position as it was back then. Back Mm -hmm. then they're like, okay, well, do you have anchoring experience? And at the time I, I didn't. So I was blessed that Kaylee W was willing to take a chance on me and allow me to be there Monday through Friday, 11 p.m. Um, anchor and producer. Um, and producing is really when I, I learned a lot more about the industry and the behind the scenes and what producers expect out of their on-camera talent. Um, and and that was something that that was really good for me because it taught me to be a leader. It allowed mm-hmm. me to hone in on my leadership skills as a producer because you have to be vocal. You have to delegate tasks. And I don't know about you, but I'm a Capricorn. And so I like <laughs> to do everything myself. I don't mm-hmm. like really sharing responsibilities, but you have to know which responsibilities you're willing to give up and which ones you're, you know, you're willing to be like, okay, if it doesn't go the way I thought it was going to go, at least they helped me because I have other things that I need to move on to. Not everything's going to be perfect. Um, and right. so, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who kind of tries to manifest every single thing that, that I put into writing, anything that I say to God, I'm a woman of God. And, you know, anything that I say that I'm going to do, I really, really want it to happen. And so um, sometimes to a fault. And so I, I said, you know what? I want to be a news anchor in a top 50 market. I no longer want to MMJ, um, which is multimedia journalist. I no longer want to be out in the field by myself. I want my next market to provide me with a photographer. I feel like that is going to elevate my storytelling. Because at the time I was still doing like once a month reports at KLEW in Idaho, Mm -hmm. um, Lewis in Idaho, and um, was still MMJing, but like at a much like less capacity, just maybe one time a month, twice a month type of thing. Um, And, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina was my next stop. And uh, WGHP, Greensboro, North Carolina, Fox 8, and um, they gave me a weekend anchor position and a reporter position, which I started working with a photographer. And that's how I earned my first Emmy. Um, you know, I credit my photographer, Nelson Kepley, just as much as as much as that story meant meant for me. And I know we'll dive into that. But as much as that um, eight part series meant to me, it meant a lot to him as well. And so being able to collaborate with someone and be like, hey, you know what? I'm really good at writing, interviewing and worrying about like storytelling, I need someone to help me tell this story visually. And um, he understood the assignment. And so um, that's definitely something that I carry with me there. And that's kind of where I became, you know, the journalist I'd always want to become was in North Carolina. Not only was it the most diverse place I'd ever lived, so I could finally feel like I could be myself. Um, And, you know, as a Black journalist who often wears her hair natural, 
and I have different hairstyles. I've all I've never been sold. And I remember even all the way back at OU Nightly, I'd come in with my hair straight. I'd have the afro, whatever it was. And that's just something. Those things are what make me who I am. And I never have wanted to work for um, a person or an organization that's not allowed me to be that. And luckily, all of my jobs have at least allowed me to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I feel like, you know, that's when you when you show that you are going to operate in this space as you are authentically, people that resonates with people, that resonates with audiences and also, you know, companies that want are that are looking for people who are authentic, right? Right. Because you need trust to be able to tell these stories, to be able to get access to these people's lives, right? Um, yes. So yeah, you jumped the gun a little bit, but but I want you to talk about what was that eight part series? Um, you know, you you kind of just talked about you know your first Emmy as if oh just you know just a little Emmy here and there, <laughs> like an Emmy is a big deal like for anyone, yeah. right? Um, so I, I want to step in that moment for a little bit and be in that moment. Uh, what was it like winning an Emmy, right? Uh, for such an important story. And then I want you to get into what that story was. Okay, yeah. I feel like the one thing I want to say before I get into it too is that everywhere you go, there you are. That's my favorite quote. Um, And I feel like a lot of times it's been hard for me throughout my career to sit in what has just happened or sit in um, something good that's happened to me. And I think the pressures of this industry and uh, the very much so new now next. What's next? Well, what's new? Mm. Um, it's hard to sit in that. It took me a long time, like months, I think, to post about my Emmy. And I don't know what it was. I was in this space where I just felt like I ask a lot of myself. And so whenever I won the Emmy, I remember thinking, all right, cool. So now I need to do X, Y, and Z. Let's go for a Murrow. Let's uh, become a national correspondent. Let's do this. Let's do that. Um, and it took me months. And I feel like God will put you in a situation where you have to sit in that season. And just kind of foreshadowing forward, in th- that season for me was shortly after I left Greensboro. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, I just feel like a lot of times we we just don't focus on the things that are happening now. So I hope if any other young journalists are thinking about, you know, their next move or whatever, that they take time to sit back and be like, you know what, what I'm doing now is not only good, I'm proud of myself, but also you are in that market now. You might be looking for your next job, but that day, that story that you're putting together that day is also important. Mm -hmm. You got to be present for where you're at. Um, And so, yeah, so Forgotten Souls came about. That's the name of the series, the eight part series, Forgotten Souls of the North of North Carolina's Black Cemeteries. And um, I had gotten to Greensboro right after, like COVID was, I was in the middle of COVID, May 2020. I remember getting on a plane, not knowing like, oh no, am I going to get COVID? What's going to happen? And so leaving Idaho to go to Greensboro was already a leap of faith. Of course, I wanted to leave Idaho. That was always the plan. Um, But, and I made great friends there, great people, but I always wanted to leave and chase that top 50 dream. That was my dream at the time. Um, And I remember somebody saying, you know, that's a unicorn dream. You want all of those things. And like, I mean, you're only in Idaho. Like I remember them downplaying my dreams and, and I called a friend from OU and he was like, so what? You don't even know her. Who cares? Like you just met this girl and you asked her for advice. 
Like, who cares what she said? I know you. You went to the University of Oklahoma and you know what you're doing and this and that. And so my friends also helped me through that time um, when I was transitioning into Greensboro as well. But that being said, got to Greensboro, uh, May 2020. I think it was around June. I got put on a general assignment story and it was something from the newspaper. And that's why it's so important for people to read all kinds of news, um, no matter how you get it, whether it be the newspaper, digital form, whatever. Um, it was a newspaper article that said a group of archaeologists were going to be coming to this area that was known as the colored part of Oakwood Cemetery. Um, and they're going to be doing ground penetrating radar and they're going to be looking for hidden tombstones. Very generic. Mm. I was like, all right. It was a new reporter. I was like, I'll do it. Let's go out there. Luckily, the day I was there, the woman who had created this project for to not only recognize the graves that were there, but to also get city funds to um, do that ground penetrating radar. Like she had been fighting for years, talking to the city officials, like, did you guys know there's a grave gravesite area within the Oakwood Cemetery in the corner in the back that is only black people buried there? Did you guys know this? She went through the trouble of um, finding a way to get the plaque up that read the colored cemetery of Oakwood. Um, and luckily she was there that day. Um, and she gave, she did an interview with me and just the thing she was telling me, like she was giving me their life stories. Like she knew the, it was almost like she knew the people who were buried there. Mind you, she's an implant. She had not grown up to my knowledge in High Point, North Carolina, but somehow she had been researching all of these people's lives. And so when she would tell me their story, yes, she was married to so-so-and-so. Her grandma was this person and that person. I'm thinking it really puts into your mind that these are human beings. They once had families. They have families who are still living today who don't know what's going on, that their loved ones are buried here. Um, so I did that story in June. And at the time, I believe it was, they thought they had 50 hidden um, gravestones. And by the time I did a follow-up in December, um, they had, I want to say it was about 250 is what wow. they found. It was something like astronomical, maybe three times more than they thought. So I'm like, oh no, like a light bulb went off in my head. And I'm like, there's got to be more cemeteries across the country, not only across the country, but here in North Carolina, we're in the South. There has to be other cemeteries that have black cemeteries within them. There has to be other black cemeteries specifically. And so I started, I came to my boss that January. It was just a story that kind of kept me up. And I think too, um, because as, as you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, my mom passed away our senior year of college and it was like right before Christmas and I was a senior and I was supposed to, I'm scheduled to graduate in May and had to go back to school. And so a lot of times I say journalism saved my life for that reason, because OU Knightley, journalism school, all of that, like gave me the the strength and energy to be like, you know what? I have business to take care of. There are things I want to do next semester. I said I was going to be an anchor. And so I'm sure there was a lot of people like, why is she taking this so seriously? But that's genuinely what I had, like what I felt like I had left in that moment. And so like having a mom who passed away and one of the things my mom said, she she had cancer, which she struggled with like all throughout my college career um, from freshman year to senior year. I remember her saying like towards the end, like when I pass away, 
don't leave me there. Don't forget about me. Mm. And that was something that stuck with me. And I'm thinking, oh, no, these people's families have forgotten about them. They don't visit. Um, you know, I don't know how other people think about life and death, but, you know, you always want to think that people care about you. And I'm like, these people are forgotten. Nobody knows they're here. The people who would have come don't even know that they should be coming. So I started doing this research. I think by February, um, we had started shooting the series. And I want to say by April, it was, it was a quick turnaround by April because, mind you, it was an eight-part series, multiple people within each um, episode. And so my first episode, I, I think I talked about, you might remember the Oakwood Cemetery. Turns out after, you know, our reports came out, 250 grave sites had been found when it was originally said to be 50. And guess what? We found more across the triad, which is in North Carolina. It includes High Point, Greensboro um, and Winston-Salem. And so now I'm getting people every time I go meet a group of people at a cemetery, they're telling me about the next story. Oh, you need to make sure you talk to this person. They also have a cemetery down there in Winston-Salem. They got one in High Point. Um, there was one in Louisville, North Carolina, middle of nowhere. And I remember the Louisville one very distinctly because I got a family member. She had been trying to advocate for that particular grave gravesite in that um, cemetery. And she had all of this information um, down to the letter of her one of her descendants who was a slave on the day that he was freed. And he wrote wow. a letter to someone in their family. And she had all this information. Um, and she was like a self-taught historian. And she was like, yeah, every year we have a picnic here to remember our family members who were here. Granted, her family grew up on that same plot, that area. So she knew that they were there. She'd always known that they were there. But then you go back to um, the cemetery in, I, I want to say it's in Winston-Salem as well, um, Happy Hill Cemetery, and the other one down the street that's escaping my mind right now. But I remember the guy saying, you know, you got people riding around here, not even knowing they have loved ones here. And I spoke to a descendant there, and she told me, because of all the overgrown brush that had happened and it, it almost looked like a jungle, nobody had been visiting because they didn't know it was there. And she said it took them almost 20 years to get to her aunt Helen's grave. Excuse me. They found out about it in the nineties. And by the time they got enough funding, they got enough people to volunteer to clean up. It was like they had to inch towards the graves and now it's finally clean. But she said it took more than 20 years and her mom had already passed away by the time that it was time that they found Aunt Helen's grave. She was Jeez. like, we had been searching for that grave all those years. And so I, I continued telling those stories, um, ended up being a found a guy named Earl who used to help his dad as a little kid dig the graves. His dad was a grave digger specifically assigned to black cemeteries mm -hmm. and he was a black man. And he talked to me about how how uh, he would help him, you know, dig the graves. And he remembers being a little boy and how at first it was difficult, but he didn't complain because his father never complained. He never knew his father to complain. And then also uncovering that the North Carolina Department of Transportation physically moved multiple graves to make room for a highway. Mm -hmm. And so I felt wow. it was imperative for me to do a stand up 
up against the fencing of the highway and say, you guys drive, you know, across here all the time. But did you ever notice right over here is a cemetery in which the Department of Transportation admitted I had to reach out to all these different people to get this information. And they admitted, yeah, we moved a number of graves. We can't tell you how many. We can't tell you whose it was. And no, we did not tell anybody that we were moving them. Like we didn't reach out to family members. And so for me, that's my way of, of, being a civic person, like is to expose hidden truths. And um, in the last installment was um, the story of Eugene Harrison. He's the only noted lynching in Guilford County, which is near Greensboro, North Carolina. And nobody really knew about him. You have this large piece of history, of course, history that a lot of people don't want you to know about um, because it's an ugly part of your history in that city, in that county, to know that, you know, he was accused of um, sexually assaulting a white girl, very similar to Emmett Till, and that he was taken away. He he was arrested. He was put in a jail. Popular justice, somewhere between 50 and 100 people came to that jail, either convinced the officer to let them in, bombarded the place, rushed the place, stole him from the jail, hung him, and battered his body. They said his body, as if it wasn't enough to hang him, his body was so bullet ridden that you couldn't even disguise, like you couldn't even tell who he was. And a lot of people didn't know about it. Um, And his parents, we we still don't know exactly where he's buried, but there's a a cemetery in Kernersville, a, um, a black portion of that cemetery in Kernersville. There was a group that was doing a project basically um, just trying to unveil all of these lynchings. So essentially their job is to look into lynchings in Guilford County. Granted, that's the only noted one. So their sole purpose exists at this point to tell Eugene Harrison's story. So they went to that Kernersville Cemetery. They placed a um, little note in one of the areas. And one of the people who was the president of the cemetery, um, a white lady, she read it. And it said something along the lines of this is for Eugene Harrison. He's the only noted lynching. Um, He may be buried here. So then that lady started looking into it Um, and come to find out they they don't know he's if he's buried there, because apparently whenever people were lynched, a lot of times they'd be dug back up to then inflict some sort of harm on them again. So you don't want to put their name on there. So then those people who inflicted the the first round of injustices on them don't dig them back up. And so hearing those things are very difficult. Talking about them are also difficult, but they're important so we don't forget our past. And for me, you know, that story was, it was emotional. There were times that I cried, um, times that I was frustrated, times that I wanted more time to work on it because I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted it to be something that was representative of these people's lives, these people who have been forgotten about. Um, and and so the Emmy for me, um, I also won an RTDNAC award, first place for it, but the awards were not, <laughs> the awards were not um, the thing that I did it for. The awards were just kind of the icing on the cake. I wanted to know that people watched it that people heard what was said, that people understood what happened in our past that led to this. Um, and finding out that the uh, Forsyth County uh, Historic Society ended up showing um, another documentary based on other Black cemeteries because they watched mine, 
that was huge for me because I'm like, okay, this is community impact. The people who literally live in Forsyth County watch this eight part series and are now showing a series of their own because I showed this one. Man, <clears throat> I had to just kind of take a step back listening because um, I feel like you just gave a blueprint, right, for a way that we can do journalism that centers the stories of those most impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the same time that you were releasing your eight part series um, in 2021 um, was around the same time that um, all eyes in the nation and across the world were on Tulsa you know, for the 100 year anniversary of the race massacre, right? And Tulsa's been undergoing the same uh, uh, efforts when it comes to using ground penetrating radar to try and find and identify um, some of the remains of those victims. And what I really found (laughs) fascinating about your story was, you know, at the time that you were unveiling it, it wasn't getting the type of national attention that the Tulsa mm-hmm. was getting, right? right? But it's just as important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because these, 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 these people, these souls didn't have uh, organizations uh, aside from a few lone individuals working to uncover their stories. They didn't have city and state governments working to capitalize and, and use right. tourism for that story, you know? And so without your work, like you said, Forsyth and other communities, there wouldn't have been that type of awareness and impact. And so please, mm-hmm. please just, I hope you can just be in that moment and, and recognize what you, what you accomplished, what you accomplished. I definitely, I have my Emmy in my house. <laughs> so I, definitely, <laughs> I see it. And I mean, it, it's something that connects me still to that community forever. I always say Greensboro, North Carolina was my favorite place to have worked, to have lived. Even when I was in a transition between jobs, I mean, I went back to Greensboro because it felt like home. Um, I I tried out Oklahoma for a couple months. Um, I was there, you know, helping out my dad. He had fallen sick in between my contract ending there and me coming here. And so, um, you know, Greensboro definitely always has a place in my heart because I knew in that moment that we're in a specific moment as black journalists. We may not get this again, where news directors are now listening to us. The things that we said were actually real. You know, a lot of times when black people come forward and they say, hey, this is happening or this is going on, people say, what's the proof or show me proof or Mm -hmm. it was a very specific time. And I was like, if I'm ever going to do this or tell stories like this, I have to start now. Because people are listening. We have the ears of the entire country after George Floyd. It was all happening and and unraveling at one time, it felt like. And in some spaces, in some ways, it was definitely a burden for a lot of Black journalists. I mean, we were tired. I mean, between covering protests and this and that, I mean, a lot of Black journalists were tired. And But the work doesn't end. It continues, no matter what. Right. And... That's a great transition because now you're in D.C., you're in the capital of the nation covering stories from across the nation, right? Talk about what it is you do now. Yeah. So, you know, after I I completed that series, um, and I think, I mean, I would say the November before I was an Emmy winner, I was Emmy nominated at that point. Mm -hmm. But that's what gave me the confidence to say, okay, now's the time to be going for your ultimate goal, which was always, even in college, 
you know, Mike Betcher, our, our old professor, he'll tell you, I've always wanted to be a national correspondent. And I remember being like, okay, in November, I think I was nominated in November-ish. And November, December is when I started believing in myself. A lot of times I think it's that it's your self-belief that stops you from doing certain things. You're thinking I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I've only been to Nebraska, Idaho, and Greensboro. And for people who aren't in the journalism industry, they might think that's a lot. That's a lot of different places you've been to. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the industry has changed and I was realizing that change as it was happening. Like, you no longer necessarily have to have 15, 20 years of experience. I think our generation has, the millennials have said, you know what, now's the time. Tomorrow's not promised. Um, and so I started believing in myself and started catering my work to that and, and expecting that level of work from myself as I was ending out my um, my contract that was set to end in May of 2022. Um, and so I, I remember applying for those jobs, interviewing for those jobs. And, you know, some news directors were like, you know, you're just not ready yet. You need another year. You need another market. You need this. And as you heard in my story earlier, I'm not somebody who takes no very lightly. I'm like, okay, bet. Like, I don't need another year. I know myself. I know, you know, what I bring to the table. And I think in that moment, I was like, okay, it's this or nothing. Like I'm a very, I'm doing this or I'm doing nothing type of person. And so when my contract ended in, I think I extended it to June. So I stayed an extra month. I, it ended in June and from June all the way to um, January, I had no job. Like I was kind of like just doing random jobs just to keep myself afloat. Mm -hmm. But I remember the entire time because my faith is so strong now, it did, it wasn't not shaky. It was definitely <laughs> shaky. And I'm like, God, why? And I'm seeing other people who I've worked with, who've worked under me, continue to go up. And I'm like, God, what is it that you're preparing me for? Why is this not happening? Why can't I be a national correspondent right now? And it was definitely a tough time. Like between those months of, uh, I want to say that toughness started in April, and I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. My dad had gotten sick. So I was like, I got to get back to Oklahoma. Luckily, he's doing a lot better now. But April is just when things started to go down. And I'm like, so by the time I, I, I had just won the Emmy, it just was like one thing after another was happening in my life to where I couldn't sit in the fact that I just won an Emmy. Like my contract's ending. This means I need, I don't have money to pay my rent. So how am I going to live? I need to get out of here. My dad's sick. Um, back home. So I'm just thinking of all these things. So I remember just being like, the end goal is still what the end goal is. And knowing that, like putting my hands up, like that was the one time I literally had to put my hands up and just surrender to everything. Cause I was like, I have no idea where God has taken me, but I'm here. And I knew that all the hardships that were happening to me as they were happening, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to write that in my book. I'm going to, uh, remember this. I'm going to look back on this and know like, dang, I got through that, but my story is going to be a testament. All of these tests I'm going through, it is going to be a testament for other people. And while you never want to be the guinea pig, you never want to feel like, you know, you're the one that it's all happening to. I kept that in the back of my mind the entire time. Like, uh, things suck right now, but I'm going to get out of this space. So I took a job um, by January, I want to say January, I, I might've started in February at Neighborhood TV. 
which is a 24-7 streaming platform and was a digital journalist working remotely in Atlanta. And so I was telling news in Atlanta, but I was working remotely. I I stayed in North Carolina because I was like, these are my people. Right. I ended up getting an apartment in Raleigh, and which is the capital. And I was like, all right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna take this job. And I'm it, they didn't have a contract, and so it wasn't like a you know most times it's a a two year contract type of thing. It was more like a freelance job. And so I was so thankful that they gave me that opportunity because now I'm back in the industry. Now I'm, you know, still in the back of my mind, though, like thinking, OK, eventually this is going to happen. But I was I was at I was at peace with being like, all right, well, this is my life right now. Like mm -hmm. literally February this time last year, I was just like, yeah, I don't know when it's happening. This whole national job situation. I don't know if. I knew it would always happen, but I was like, it looks like my timeline just, <laughs> I really <laughs> overshot this one. I've always been someone about manifesting, but I was like, wow, this one just didn't go my way. Oh, well. So it was working from February to March, April, May, June. And I think June around that time, granted, throughout this whole time, I had a mentor, um, Deborah Alfaron, and she actually works here, where I'm at now. And, and she was always encouraging me. And I remember she started that this job at Gray Television at Local News Live around the same time that I started uh, my job at Neighborhood TV. And I was just like, oh, congrats, like on the job. Blah, blah. I never thought like, OK, one of these days, you know, plug me in or anything right. like that. <laughs> um, June comes around and I see they have an opening. And I remember I think it was like May in the month of May. Um, I saw the opening and was like, yeah, I'm not going to apply. Like I literally waited a month because I was so, you know, defeated from rejection, I think, uh -huh. from all of those months. I mean, that time frame, I didn't have a job. It wasn't that I wasn't applying. I was specifically right. applying, but I was applying to all kinds of jobs because I was just like, at this point, something's got to work out. And so um, I saw it and it was like a month later, it was June. I was like, you know what? Let me just message Deborah about this job. So I messaged her, hey, do you know anything about this? She's like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like you would be the perfect fit. Like, I don't know why I didn't think of you. <laughs> um, and so June, I get my first, uh, she helps me put together my reel, making sure it looks, and, and that's one of the things too, is like, it takes the time that it takes mm -hmm. because the reels that I had before, it was like, I don't know, my brain is wired differently now. Like, why was it wired that way to put together a better reel in that moment than it was to put it together before? Like, I don't know what it was, but like, God, I think was just like, not yet, not yet. So the way my reels were presenting themselves weren't necessarily indicative of what I could do. And so she helped me put together this reel. Like I sent her all these clips and I'm just like, okay, this, this is how you need to put it together. This is the order you need to put it in because you're like selling yourself short. And a lot of times we do that to ourselves, especially when we're putting together a resume or a reel or anything like that. <laughs> we sell we're ourselves short. We're not always short. our best marketers. Like, exactly. You know? And it's like, I could do this for somebody else. But when mm -hmm. it's myself, it's so hard for me to talk about myself in a way that like, and I, I've worked to free myself of that recently, um, of like speaking up uh, on yourself uh, rather yeah. than down. Because you talk to yourself more than anybody else. Then facts. if you keep saying negative things, that you're always going to continue to feel negative. And so I, I, I fixed this reel up. I remember July 4th. I remember I had, you know, a little 
a little party at my house and I was telling my friends like, hey, y'all, I applied for this job. I don't know. I might be gone soon. Like, <laughs> you know, just kind of letting them know. And I'm like, yeah, OK, we'll see. Fast forward by the end of July, it all worked out and Local News Live offered me the job of my dreams because granted, I was asking God for a national correspondent position, wow. which is out in the field. Um, sometimes here on Capitol Hill, you know, you're you're running and shooting a lot. You're doing a lot of stuff. And I remember like, God, why am I not a national correspondent? What is going on? Like, I have just as much experience as this person or that person. Well, the only difference is that you don't believe in yourself. And they do. Uh, and so, you know, like going going through that and then being offered a national anchor position, I was like, oh, okay, God, you did your big one <laughs> on this one. Okay, like, this job didn't even exist when I was leaving Greensboro. It like you, you've been here, Dion. You've come to our studio, and it's all new. It's up and yeah. coming. It's a startup, and so Gray Television is not new, but um, Local News Live being added to Gray Television is a new venture. And so this job did not exist whenever I was applying for all those jobs. And so it's like literally divine timing that. I applied for the job. I, not only did I start to believe in myself enough again, and, you know, I credit my other job, Neighborhood TV, for that because it find like I was in a space where I didn't feel as much daunting pressure of deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a space that like was conducive to what I where I was in that moment. I was in my home. Um, and so and, and around positive people and positive coworkers. And so. Um, I think all of that built up my self-confidence because when I say like I had to rebuild myself, like going from an Emmy award winner to not having a job. Wow. Like that was just wild. To, I literally had no job. I remember being like telling somebody, yeah, I won an Emmy once. <laughs> like <laughs> I was kind of just like, yeah, I did back that. Back in another but, life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Back in another. They were like, wasn't that just a few months ago? Like, yeah. But. <laughs> I'm still working to get back in the industry. Like, I just didn't know what I knew eventually I'd get back in the industry, but I did not know where it was going. So that's why I always say, you know, Local News Live is a dream job for me. Here at Gray Television, we have over 114 local news stations. And a lot of those local news stations are picking us up as a daytime, almost like a daytime TV show. And so we're like, that's why I say this is my dream. I'm able to cover politics. Um, race and culture stories and uh, do interviews about that. That's always been my goal. I was like, if I don't get a national correspondent position, it has to be a race and culture position because mm -hmm. that cemetery series made me realize like, this is what I need to be doing. And I'm, and at that time I was finally in a market with a larger group of black people. <laughs> I mean, Idaho and Nebraska, you're not really going to have as many right. race and culture stories to pick from. Um, and so the fact that I'm able to really flex different muscles here in this position, I mean, it, it's the perfect position for me. And I'm in the nation's capital, and that's always been a dream of mine as well. It's so wild hearing you talk about this because it's like an iceberg. You know, we only see the 10% on the surface of what you choose to put out. And yeah. no one sees the hustle. No one sees the struggle. No one sees the the denial, the rejections, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so for you to <laughs> for you to describe it as, you know, I go from winning an Emmy to to not having a job and, and then I get back into the industry with my dream job. I mean, that is just mm -hmm. that's a wild turnaround, you know? 
I'm telling you, I'm I'm gun ho. Like I was like, I'm not going to another newsroom. <laughs> it's like I'm not if this is not a national job, like I physically can't go there because mm. it is a lot of pressure. And I was I was at a point in my life where I was like, I'm no longer gonna do things that don't also serve me. Cause I think a lot of times it's such a selfless job. You know, you see war correspondents out there literally risking their lives. Like this is such a selfless job. And um, I think you get to a point where a lot of people have burned out and they're like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Uh, when you start off, the money's not good. You know, you're living paycheck to paycheck and it's hard. It's really, really hard. You're away from family. And so you got to, I mean, the closer I inch to the age of 30, I'm now 30, <laughs> but the closer I had been inching, I was just like, I need to do something that's conducive to my personal life as well. This is a personal goal that I have for myself. And I got to find a way that, you know, like I can't bring in a family as a Monday through Friday reporter. Like that's not how I felt I was built to do that. I just feel like that's a lot. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I know myself and I knew what I was capable of and what I was willing to do. Because I think those are two different things, what you're capable of and what you're willing to do. And I think once you establish yourself in your job, whatever your job might be, and I mean, we're looking at almost 10 years in the game at this point, And it's like, what do you want? Mm. I think that's important because, you know, like you said, you have to be able to focus on what those goals are, but you can't let it get to the point where you're driving, where you're killing yourself, you know? And I yes. feel like, especially as black journalists, we have this extra pressure from ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. To not only be the best at what we do, but to cover those types of stories that impact our communities in a positive way, right? Yeah. Um, but it's important that we don't, you know, that we take care of ourselves in that in the process of that. Yes. And I think that's where we, we, we miss out on a lot of times, especially in, a, in an industry where, you know, like you said, you're running and gunning um, yes. for, you I can't know, tell dollars. you how many of our classmates, um, I, I don't even know if any of us are still in, in the industry other than you and I. I Man. mean, you go from graduating with 20 people and it's like, you just, you get burned out. You get mm -hmm. to a point where you're like, is this worth it? And so these little nuggets along the way have certainly helped me whenever, you know, I'm out in the community and people have said, hey, I see the work you're doing and acknowledging that because a lot of times, you know, 2020 was the year where, man, we were getting cussed out by people saying that they don't like journalists. Journalists are the enemy. And then on top of that, being black and having to be exposed to all of these videos that are circulating, whether it be George Floyd, Tyree Nichols, whoever it is. Like I got to a point where once the Ahmaud Aubrey situation happened, mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not watching it. I still to this day have not watched that video in full because I I was like, I believe it. It's enough to write about it. And I believe that that's what happened. I'm not mm -hmm. going to watch it because I don't want to inflict any more harm on myself. No, I mean, there's literal studies that 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 kind of quantify the mental trauma that it has on people, especially the, the black people watching those types of um, those types of videos. Um, and so, man, you know, when I look at you and your career, you know, and, and don't, don't feel, you know, weird about it, but like, look, no one really knew who Oprah was when she was first starting <laughs> out. Right. But she kept yeah. hustling. She kept grinding. She kept finding creative ways to promote the stories she was telling and look yeah. where she's at now. So I definitely see you as an Oprah Gale type situation oh. where... Thank you. You know, 10 years from now, it's only going to be even 
bigger than you even expected. Amen. You know? And it's because of the work that you continue to put in and the faith that you have that um, that drives you. And so appreciate that. one last thing I want to talk about, you know, um, as a D.C. reporter, uh, as a national um, correspondent, you uh, you've covered the story of black soldiers from 1917 who had their convictions overturned. Right. Um, you, you interviewed, I believe, a relative, mm-hmm. uh, a descendant of, of, of one of those soldiers. Can you talk about what what, what happened? Yeah. So I feel like th- that was one of the things I was saying. I, I'm so blessed to be able to be in a position in which um, as an anchor here at LNL, I'm able to do interviews. Even if I'm not out in the field, I'm still able to find these interviews, do them. And I, I actually saw it on CNN and I'm thinking to myself, I saw Abby Phillip interview her and I'm like, oh, let me just reach out. She's probably not going to. And I had to snap out of it to be like, listen, OK, let's not go back down this rabbit hole. Reached out. So 1917 Houston riot. Um, it's not a well-known thing. Essentially, a group of um, soldiers who who were in the Houston area, they were there to watch over a construction site. Um, and there had been boiling tensions. Mind you, these are guys that are not from the South, like Texas, Texas. So they're like, wait, why are these white people here treating us this way? So tensions had been boiling. Um, and then a couple of their soldiers got into it with um, some police officers and it sparked what's now known as the 1917 Houston riot. Essentially, police, white police officers ended up dying because of it. And of course, back then, granted, anytime somebody dies, it's a big deal. But then that added more pressure. Um, and so these soldiers had heard that these uh, a group of, of white men and a mob was going to come get them. So they're thinking, well, we got to get them before they get us type of thing. Um, and that's at least how they portrayed it in the movie on Amazon Prime. I'm forget it's escaping my name now or it's escaping my mind now. But um, essentially, of course, the black soldiers get blamed for everything. Um, and some of them are lynched. They they assign a number of them to be lynched. Some of them are buried in mass graves, which mm-hmm. means multiple people stacked on top of each other in one grave. Um, and one of the ones who was lynched was Jesse Ball Moore. And that is, I believe, the great, great uncle of Fatima Gilliam. And Fatima Gilliam is who I ended up interviewing. And she talked about, you know, growing up, her family told her about her great, great uncle and who he was and how he wasn't able to get a proper tombstone because of what had happened. Um, And recently in 2023, the army finally said, you know what, we messed up. We realized that the trial that these men were on was uh, racially prejudiced, that they didn't get a fair trial. And so now we are going to essentially um, reinstate them and now they can have proper graves. Of course, in some ways, it's too little too late. Of course, it it shows that, okay, we did mess up. But also for people like Jesse Ball Moore, who didn't have kids, he was really young. He was in his 20s. He had not had the opportunity to have kids yet. Um, and, and talking about reparations for those families, how do you give reparations for his family? Mm-hmm. How do you... Um, continue telling this story that so many people didn't know. Like had the army never rescinded it and said, hey, we messed up, I would have never known about that story. Now, Fatima Gilliam had known, she'd grown up knowing about this. 
Um, and and I, I think it definitely impacted her life in the sense that now she has a new book coming out called Race Rules. And she talks about allyship and what it means to be an ally to black and brown communities. And so um, having her perspective as a descendant to say, yeah, this happened, like this is real. I think a lot of times we think it's so far fetched. Like there's no way your great, great uncle was was lynched. Yeah, he was. And this is the person that it happened to. And she had pictures of him, which made it even more impactful. And, um, you know, it's just it, it's so sad even seeing the pictures of them inside that courtroom. And whenever now in the Constitution, it says a jury among your peers, none of them looked like any of those soldiers. None of the people on that jury looked anything like those black soldiers whose lives were taken from them. And so, you know, what do you hope comes out of amplifying and elevating these types of stories that are really for so long they've been untold? Yeah, I hope I'm hoping to start conversations like whenever you go out to eat and you break bread with people from different backgrounds. I'm hoping to start conversations and open up minds. I can't tell you how much uh, my relationships with some of my my white counterparts, people who I went we went to college with, who I feel like had they not met me, they never would have known that perspective, who are from small towns in Oklahoma, um, who just maybe had never had an opportunity to have a black friend, or maybe they just don't understand. And I genuinely think our friendship and our conversations has opened up their eyes to be like, oh my gosh, things are different for me than they are for her. And so I truly want to start conversations of understanding because even before Forgotten Souls, I've always been someone who has covered stories that are a lot of times forgotten in Nebraska, covering um, the autistic community and a family who had three autistic children to Idaho, where I did a 30 minute long special about homelessness and the Mm -hmm. impacts of homelessness on the community. I truly want people to look at people experiencing homelessness and notice I used experiencing homelessness rather than homeless people because that is who they are. They're just people who are experiencing this hardship. So I truly want to make an impact in that we start these conversations. It changes the way we talk to each other, the way we treat each other, the way we see each other, because at the end of the day, we have more alike than we do um, than we don't rather. Well, you're already doing it. You've been doing it. And I can't wait to see what you continue to do. Rashida Kaba, local news live. I got it right. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the the show and uh, stay blessed. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for all the work that you do as well. You know, that's definitely been something that's inspiring for me to see from across. You've never switched up. You've always been for the people and you continue to do that. And I really appreciate that. So thank you. We need more journalists like you too. Thank you so much. 